Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also teach Old and New Testament systematic theology and church history at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Back in the spring, I released a new book called Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. And one of the reasons that I wrote that book was because in many years of over 25 years of pastoral ministry, there's been a lot of Christians that I've counseled, uh, people that I've tried to help spiritually that don't understand who they are in Christ. They have a faulty understanding of their identity, and that leads to a lot of different issues. It leads to guilt, it leads to fear, it leads to pride, it leads to trying to somehow perform in order for God to love you back and to earn His love. And so one of the things that I wanted to do in in writing that book was to talk about how being comes before doing, or who we are is almost more important than what we do. And sometimes we get the cart before the horse. We start doing a bunch of things for God, and we really don't understand the motivation as to why we do those things. And so the reason I wrote the book was to give a full, robust treatment of the doctrine of the Trinity, but to make it practical in helping us understand our relationship to each person in the Trinity, our relationship to the Father, our relationship to the Son, our relationship to the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes in evangelical Christian circles, we talk a lot about God the Father, and we talk a lot about Jesus the Son, but sometimes the Holy Spirit gets neglected. Uh, You see the extreme things in the word faith, hyper-charismatic movement, Um, and so there's a lot of uh, fear in talking about the Holy Spirit, but I think it's vitally important that we as Christians understand our identity in the Holy Spirit. So what I'm going to do in this podcast is simply read uh, chapter 6 from my book, Your Identity in the Holy Spirit. Again, if you haven't had a chance to check the book out, you can go to Amazon. There's a Kindle edition. There's also a paperback edition. Um, It's available on Christian book distributors, Barnes & Noble, um, Amazon as well. But I just wanted you as my listening audience to, if you haven't read the book or haven't checked it out, um, when you go to Amazon and you preview the book, Um, you can't read this portion of it because there's only certain portions that you can look inside the book. But this is from chapter 6, Your Identity in the Holy Spirit. In each chapter, I begin with a quote. And so this first quote comes from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind or chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. So let's begin chapter 6. Imagine this scenario. You're going through your Facebook feed and you come across a friend's post about the practice of grave sucking. And in curiosity, you click on the link. You've just entered the world of the extreme prophetic hyper-charismatic movement where people go to people's gravestones and try to suck the anointing from their dead bodies. For example, one pastor and his wife physically laid on C.S. Lewis's grave in an attempt to suck out his anointing. As you continue to surf the internet, you come across another teacher who's famous for his YouTube clips of smoking or toking the Holy Ghost. He compares the Holy Spirit to a drug that you shoot up or like marijuana that you smoke so that you will get closer to God. 
And then it links you to another website where a woman passionately gives a testimony about getting closer to the Holy Spirit through gold dust coming down in a church meeting, out-of-body astral projections, and angel orbs. After you shake your head in both shock and disbelief, you wonder what any of this has to do with the Holy Spirit. Now imagine the second scenario. You get a knock on your door and two young men with white shirts and nice black slacks show up and inquire about what you believe about Jesus. You begin to question them about the tenets of their faith and find out that they believe in a prophet who allegedly received golden tablets in upstate New York in the mid-1800s. They think of a Holy Spirit as a force or fog or some ethereal power as they refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. In scenario one, you've seen the wildest and most extreme abuses of the Holy Spirit through the word faith theology. And in the second scenario, you've been confronted by a major cult that denies the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And then you begin to think to yourself, you know what? I'm not sure what I believe about the Holy Spirit. I can't remember the last time I heard a sermon on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In some evangelical churches, there's a heavy emphasis upon the Father and the Son to the neglect of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, there may be an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit and some of the more radical manifestations you may see in the word faith movement. Much confusion exists on this matter of who the Holy Spirit is and how we relate to Him in our salvation. What exactly is our gospel identity in the Holy Spirit? Who are we in relation to the Spirit? We are regenerated, indwelt, and sanctified by the Spirit. Heading regenerated by the Spirit. In the last chapter, we explored the doctrine of justification, whereby God declares us not guilty on account of the imputed righteousness of Christ. When we placed our faith in Jesus alone for salvation, God permanently, instantaneously, and completely justified us. Why did you believe in Jesus? What enabled your response to place your faith in Christ? Can sinners who are spiritually dead come to Christ unaided? The reason you believed in Jesus was that the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again or regenerated you. Before we understand the concept of the Spirit's regenerating power, we must understand the depravity and spiritual inability of humans due to sin. Let us explore three truths related to regeneration. Truth number one. You are born spiritually dead and unable to come to Christ due to the guilt of sin. In John 6, Jesus reveals some of the most explicit statements about the sinfulness of humans and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus repeats this reality in John 6.65 by emphasizing that no one can come to him unless the Father has granted it. The wording here in the original language, dunamis, describes our inherent inability. No one has the ability in and of themselves to believe in Jesus or come to him in faith. Why do sinners lack the ability to believe in Jesus? Well, maybe you think you, we were all born as a blank slate and that we choose to sin because of our environment. Perhaps you think that we are not born sinners as a result of Adam's first trespass in the garden. Maybe you believe that we sin from time to time, but that we're really not that bad. Does the Bible teach that we are in bondage to sin and unable to come to Christ if left to ourselves? 
Romans 8, 68 affirms this spiritual inability. Quote, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. End quote. Paul describes the condition of non-Christians as those who are, quote, in the flesh, which means total domination by indwelling sin. This self-centered depravity characterizes the fundamental nature of unsaved people and is not something people can float in and out of. Also, the verbs in this passage are in the present tense, which denotes an ongoing reality. An unregenerate sinner's mind is currently spiritually dead and separated from God. Paul uses the same word, dynamis, that we saw in John 6, in that sinners cannot submit to God's law and cannot please God. This passage doesn't simply say they won't please God, but they cannot. They lack the ability. What's the one thing that pleases God the most? Coming to faith in His Son, Jesus. In bondage to sin, you cannot please God by doing the greatest act of worship and devotion, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. 1 Corinthians 2.14 echoes this truth, quote, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, end quote. The natural person or the unsaved person is, again, not able to understand the things of the Spirit. This inability does not mean a non-Christian cannot understand the facts concerning the gospel or that they cannot comprehend biblical concepts. They can receive the data cognitively, but spiritually, they cannot exercise saving faith without the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the fundamental problem that is universal to all people. We are all born spiritually dead, children of wrath, blinded by Satan, unable to understand spiritual truth, unable to please God, and unable to come to Christ. Simply put, all people are born totally depraved and morally unable to come to Christ in the flesh. Truth number two, the Holy Spirit must overcome your deadness by granting you new life and drawing you to Jesus. In John 6, Jesus says, we cannot come unless the Father draws us. And in verse 65, Jesus says, we cannot come unless the Father enables or grants us the ability to come. What does it mean that God draws us? What does it mean that God grants us the ability to come? Well, one lexicon defines this as, quote, to draw with the implication that the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself or in the case of a person is unwilling to do so voluntarily, in either case with the implication of exertion on the part of the mover, end quote. The idea behind the word is that a person does not want to come to Christ and does not have the ability to come to Christ. As a result, God must overcome this unwillingness and inability by working sovereignly in the heart so that the sinner will indeed believe in Jesus. In other words, this drawing is effectual in the sense that when God draws, the sinner will come. In verse 65, Jesus uses the same terminology but changes from drawing to granting. The word here in the original language means to grant a gift. As one who's spiritually dead and in bondage, you cannot come to faith in Jesus unless the Father grants this ability to come as a gift of grace. Jesus teaches in John 6, 63, that it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
This is just another way of saying that God has to grant, draw, or enable you to place your trust in Christ alone. The Holy Spirit has to give you this new life. Why? Because in your flesh, in your bondage to sin, you're helpless. You're dead. You're incapable of coming. The flesh is of no help at all, which means that in your fallen condition, you can't benefit or assist yourself in coming to Jesus unless the Spirit gives you life. You cannot give yourself spiritual life. You lack the desire and ability to come to Christ if left to yourself. The Bible uses various different terms and metaphors to describe this concept of drawing, granting spiritual ability, and giving life to sinners. Sometimes it's called being born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 5-8, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Jesus gives an analogy of the wind, over which no one has control. You can't see the wind. You can only look at the effects or results of the wind, but you sure know when it's windy. Wind is powerful and has a mind of its own. In comparison, the Holy Spirit, like the wind, blows new life into spiritually dead sinners, causing them to be born again. Another metaphor for regeneration involves taking out a heart of stone, as evidenced in Ezekiel 36, 26-27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God sovereignly does all of the actions in this passage with the repeated, repeated phrase, I will. You can't do this spiritual heart surgery yourself. Other times the scripture refers to regeneration as God making us alive. Ephesians 2, 4-5 reads, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Who makes whom alive? Do we make ourselves alive, or does God make us alive? God makes us alive by grace. Why does God have to do it? Because we were dead in our trespasses. Acts 16, 14 describes regeneration. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia does not open her own heart to the gospel. God overcomes her spiritual inability and draws her to Christ. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes this internal cleansing using the term regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit causes us to be born again. The Spirit makes us a new question, a new creation. Here are some questions for you. Has the Father drawn you? Has the Spirit given you life? Has God replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh? Has God opened your heart? Has God made you alive in Christ? Have you been regenerated? If so, then you will come to Jesus. Regeneration comes before faith. You don't believe first and later get born again. You're born again, and the first thing you do is believe in Christ. How are you physically born as a baby? Did you do anything to birth yourself? 
Did you cause yourself to be born? What prompted you to be pushed out of your mother's womb? Under God's sovereign design, there's a nine-month pregnancy, and when the time is right, you're born. What's the first thing you do when you're born? You cry out. Now, in spiritual birth, do we initiate or cause ourselves to be born again? Do we give ourselves life? No, because we're spiritually dead. When the Holy Spirit grants life by regenerating us, the first thing we do once we're made alive is that we cry out in repentance and faith, and we come to Christ. Lorraine Bettner explains regeneration as, quote, something which is wrought in us and not an act performed by us. It is an instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. If any person believes, it is because God has quickened him. Truth number three, when the Holy Spirit gives you new life, you will come to Jesus in saving faith. If the Father has drawn you, you will come. If the Spirit has given you life, you will come. Jesus affirms this in John 6, 37, saying that all whom the Father has given will come to Him. Jesus does not say that you may come or that you might come, but that you will come. Here's the powerful truth. Nothing can stop you from coming to Jesus once the Spirit has given you life. No matter how sinful you've been, no matter how spiritually dead and rebellious you've been, no matter how guilty and helpless you are, no matter how much sin you've stacked up on your record, no amount of sin, guilt, shame, and rebellion can overcome God's sovereign power to save you when He gives you life. In an instant, He powerfully overcomes all those spiritual barriers and grants you life, and after this, you will come to faith in Christ. You will repent of your sins. You will place all of your trust in Jesus. You will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, Romans 10, 9. Confessing Christ as Lord and believing in your heart that he rose from the dead is just Paul's way of saying that you have come to Jesus. Michael Horton says, quote, the new birth is from above, not from within. We do not cause or initiate regeneration. We're not born again because we believe. We believe because God reaches down from heaven and grants us new birth, end quote. Why did you confess Jesus as Lord? Why did you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead? Why did you come to faith in Christ? Why were you saved? Because God overcame your spiritual deadness and rebellion by granting you the grace to come. God, John Murray describes God's grace in regeneration, quote, God's grace reaches down to the lowest depths of our need and meets the problem of the moral and spiritual impossibility which is inherent to our depravity and inability and that grace is the grace of regeneration, end quote. Your new identity in the Holy Spirit involves a radical inward change of heart whereby God renews, cleanses, and makes you alive in Christ. We can celebrate this reality in the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Next big heading is indwelt by the Spirit. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus gave some of the most in-depth teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit to his band of disciples in the upper room. Jesus says in John 14, 16 through 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What does our Lord instruct us about our identity as being indwelt by 
the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person co-equal with the Father and Son. As we saw in chapter 3 concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit possesses all the attributes of God as well as divine personhood. And sometimes it's easier for, easier for us to think of God the Father as a person since we can relate to our earthly fathers. We also see Jesus the Son as a person because he came physically to earth as a man. Yet it's a little bit more difficult for us to wrap our minds around viewing the Holy Spirit as a person, especially when referred to as the Holy Ghost. What comes to your mind when you think of a ghost? A phantom floating around or Casper the friendly ghost or some misty fog. I want you to notice the masculine pronouns Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. Him and He. Jesus doesn't say it will be with you and it will dwell in you. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit is not an it, but a he, a divine person who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and Son. The Holy Spirit was not created. He's not subservient to Jesus or the Father, but shares the same essence or being as God. I encourage you to be careful in how you speak of the Holy Spirit and to do so as a he or him, not as an it or a force, energy, fog, mist, anointing, or anything else that's something you can easily manipulate or confer onto another person. Jesus also describes the Holy Spirit as another helper. Now, it's important to understand the Greek word for another, for it means another of the same kind, not another of a different kind. In other words, Jesus explains that the Holy Spirit is equal in deity to the Son. We can translate this word helper, parakletos, as counselor or comforter or advocate. There's no good way to translate this unique Greek word into English and capture all of its nuances because it has multiple meanings where the context will determine how to best to understand the term. When you think of a counselor, today's usage of the word like a marriage counselor or a camp counselor may impact your thinking. This may cause some confusion in thinking about the Holy Spirit solely in therapeutic, therapeutic terms. In popular usage, one goes to a counselor for psychological help, which does not convey the original meaning of the word helper or counselor. The word helper is a good translation, but it can also mislead you to think that you're the one in charge of your life, and the Holy Spirit is more of your personal assistant to help you along whenever you need Him. This may confuse the issue to think that the Holy Spirit is subordinate to you as merely your helper, but not a sovereign and divine person who's fully God. The word parakletos also describes the role of a legal advisor or an advocate who helps in the court of law, whether as a lawyer, witness, or representative. The word also denotes reinforcement sent to the front of the battle to help the struggling troops. Jesus does not simply say that he will ask the Father to give you some help now and then. He promises a divine person, a helper, an advocate, a strengthener. In this upper room discourse, Jesus is about to leave his disciples and ascend to heaven after his resurrection. How will Jesus mediate his presence and do what he's been doing the past three years while physically on earth? How will the ministry, help, encouragement, teaching, and leadership of Jesus continue in our lives if He's not physically there? Well, Christ's presence will come through the gift of the Holy Spirit sent to strengthen, lead, guide, protect, and help us until He returns and brings us to heaven. The Holy Spirit will supply all of our needs and continue the ministry of Jesus in our hearts. While on earth in a physical body, Jesus guarded, protected, advocated, taught, ministered, and cared for the disciples. Now that he's ascended into heaven as the resurrected Messiah, the Holy Spirit will continue to carry on this work of Christ 
in our lives as well. The Holy Spirit is also the divine deposit who permanently lives in us, guaranteeing our eternal life. In John 14, 16, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. The original language, in the original language, this verb is in continual action. The Holy Spirit will always continually be with us forever. The word with means alongside, accompanying us. In verse 17, it says he will dwell with us, which means to take up residence, to abide, to permanently live with us. In the original language, we call this a timeless present tense verb. This grammar is important because it does not mean that the Holy Spirit will come and go in and out of us. Instead, the verb dwell carries the idea that the relationship is permanent and that once the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, He will never leave you. Interestingly, John employs three Greek prepositions to describe our relationship with the Holy Spirit. In your English translations, you may be tempted to glaze over little words like with and an and in and view them as insignificant. These prepositions are as follows. With you, meta. This signifies intimate fellowship with the Spirit. With you, para. This refers to the Spirit's presence as a divine person. In you, on. This stresses that the Spirit is inside of you as the source of life. This should give us great encouragement on many levels. If you are a Christian, then you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit living in you. You don't have to wait down the road for some second blessing or another experience to get more of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God fully dwelling in you. 1 John 3.24 reads, And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He's given us. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. In addition to Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit of truth living permanently inside of us, Paul also teaches that the Holy Spirit is the divine deposit or the down payment that guarantees you will have eternal life. He writes in Ephesians 1, 13-14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. What was the purpose of being, quote-unquote, sealed in Paul's day? A seal was a stamp of wax put on a document, or a hot iron used to brand cattle or even slaves. Ancient seals had three essential functions. First, seals were used to confirm that an official scroll was genuine or authentic. A scroll or a document that came from an important ruler or king would have his authoritative seal on it to show that it was legitimate. We have the official seal today that the president uses that visibly displays the authority of his office when he corresponds with Congress. Being sealed with the Holy Spirit conveys the idea that we are legitimate and authentic Christians. We have God's seal of approval in our lives to show that we are Christians, whether we feel like it or not. The Holy Spirit seals us officially, belonging to the Father through adoption. Second, a seal designated ownership. Cattle were marked with a brand to show that they belonged to the owners. 
Seals were even used on slaves to brand them with specific marks to show that they were the property of their owner. When we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it shows that Jesus bought us through his blood and the Heavenly Father owns us. The Spirit dwelling inside of us guarantees that we will forever belong to God as his treasured possession. Third, people used a seal as a security device. If the seal on an ancient scroll was broken, it meant that someone had tampered with the contents. The seal was a way to show that the materials in the scroll were protected and secure. In other words, being sealed with the Holy Spirit is God's unbreakable promise that we will be eternally secure. Paul says here that the Spirit himself serves as the guarantee of our inheritance. In that culture, people used a warranty in commercial transactions to refer to the first installment or the down payment of the total amount due. For example, when you put a down payment on your house, you're in essence promising that you will fulfill your mortgage obligations to pay your monthly fees on time. It's the bank's way of knowing that you're serious about paying for your house. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee God has given us as a promise to live inside us. Will He ever fail? Will He cease to exist? Will He crumble under pressure? Will He not live up to His end of the bargain? Absolutely not. The Sovereign Spirit infallibly ensures that we will get the final installment, namely heaven. We will get our full inheritance. We will be eternally secure. Paul affirms this idea in 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put a seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Spirit of God will never withdraw His presence. He will never nullify His guarantee. He is God's foolproof and unbreakable promise that we will be eternally secure. In other words, genuine believers in Christ will never fully nor finally fall away from the faith and lose their salvation. This is great reason to feel secure. This is great reason to thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 gives us this encouragement. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Spirit indwells you because of God's extravagant outpouring of love. Find great comfort in this security. So we're regenerated by the Spirit We're indwelt by the Spirit. And here's the third truth, sanctified by the Spirit. In 1875, English poet William Ernest Hensley authored the poem Invictus, whose final stanza captures the heart of contemporary culture. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This poem expresses the following sentiments. I don't care if the path to Christ is on the narrow road. I don't care if punishment awaits me on the final day of judgment. I don't care about anything except for me. I am in charge of my life. No one owns or controls me. I hold my future. I chart my course. I am the captain of my soul. Sadly, this self-absorbed ethos has infected many Christians who are tempted to believe that holiness and pleasing Christ is optional. As a Christian, You've been purchased with the blood of Christ to bow under the lordship of Christ by seeking to please him in everything. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10 tells us, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim 
to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Holy Spirit not only indwells us permanently, but he also sanctifies us as God's holy people. Now, do not be scared off by this word, sanctification. It simply means that the Holy Spirit sets us apart and works in our lives to make us more holy. Sanctification is what we've been exploring all along in this journey of understanding our gospel identity and this process of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. John Calvin has famously taught about the double grace in the gospel. He writes, quote, First, being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ, God becomes to us, instead of a judge, a loving father. And secondly, being sanctified by the Spirit, we aspire to integrity and purity of life. End quote. There is a double grace in the gospel. The first is justification by faith alone, which we explored in the previous chapter. This is the heart of the gospel. God no longer relates to us as a judge, but as a loving father who can legally declare us not guilty on account of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Justification is a one-time declaration that settles our standing before God for all time. We are permanently justified and always accepted and forgiven by God on account of Jesus. This is the first grace in the gospel. But there's a second grace. Because we've been justified, we will, as Calvin says, aspire to integrity and purity of life. We will grow to be more like Jesus. We will mature in Christ through obedience. We are new creations in Christ, and we are to walk in newness of life, bearing fruit for Him. The Spirit is sanctifying us in our gospel identity. Paul gives this instruction in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that, you, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, Paul specifically addresses sexual purity, but the overarching teaching is that God's prescribed will for believers is our sanctification. Peter also emphasizes this reality in 1 Peter 1, 14-16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit sanctifies you? It means that he has set you apart as distinctly different from the sinful world around you. Sanctification started when God saved you. He set you apart. He made you holy. You went from being a lost sinner to being part of the family of God. In our initial salvation, we were positionally sanctified in that God saw us as holy on account of Christ. We also grew in progressive sanctification in this process of becoming more like Jesus by walking in holiness throughout our lives. The Holy Spirit sanctified you at the new birth and continues to sanctify you or cleanse you as you grow in Christ. Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, 1-2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world, 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. J.C. Ryle defines sanctification as, quote, that inward spiritual work which the Lord Jesus Christ works in a man by the Holy Spirit, when he calls him to be a true believer, he not only washes him from sins in his own blood, but he also separates him from his natural love of sin and the world, puts a new principle in his heart, and makes him practically godly in life, end quote. Wayne Grudem defines it as, quote, a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives, end quote. We must always remember that our standing, acceptance, and assurance of God's love for us is not in how well we perform in this process of sanctification. Our identity and security come in what Christ alone has done for us and how the indwelling Spirit of God applies that to us. David Peterson claims, quote, Although God calls us to express the although God calls us to express the fact that we've been sanctified by the way we live, our standing with him does not depend on the degree to which we live up to his expectations. It depends on his grace alone. Those who are bowed down by the pressure of temptation and awareness of failure need to be reminded of the definitive sanctifying work of God in Christ, by which he has established his holy people. On this basis, they should be urged to press on in hope and grasp by faith the benefit of Christ's sacrifice, End quote. Paul provides another powerful encouragement of God's sustaining grace in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul gives us the promise that God himself will sanctify us, not partially, but completely. Now, we will never be sanctified entirely in this life, but God's desire for us is that we ever increase in holiness and ever grow in our sanctification by looking more like Jesus. Part of God's plan to keep us saved to the end involves the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to sanctify us, grow us, and progressively make us more holy. Paul reminds us of God's faithfulness to surely accomplish this work of sanctification that he began at our initial salvation. The Holy Spirit will work in us holiness to make us ready to stand before Jesus on the day of his second coming. This standing is not something we can attain through our own works of righteousness, but is the working of the Spirit in our lives who will preserve us to the end. He will surely do it. He will make sure that we remain not only pure, holy, and ready for Jesus, but that we will ultimately be saved. Think about the grandeur of the Golden Gate Bridge. This colossal structure stands 500 feet. The concrete used for each base pylon is 182,000 cubic yards dug deep into the bedrock of the cliffs jutting out of the Pacific Ocean. The load on each tower from the main cables is 61,500 tons. It is impressive as each cable is made of 27,572 strands, which translates to 80,000 miles of wire that connects approximately 1.2 million total rivets. This famous structure is a feat of engineering genius as the two towers on each end had to be built into the bedrock of the Pacific Ocean 
so that the foundation would be stable. As powerful as it is, and as thick and massive as the concrete and bedrock go to support the two towers, it is still at risk. It took four years to complete back in the 1930s, and yet seismic engineers believe that it could take less than 60 seconds to destroy the bridge if an earthquake's epicenter hits near it. Experts estimate that it can only survive a magnitude 7 earthquake. To address this threat, the city has ordered a $400 million retrofitting project that has taken almost a decade to complete that should help the bridge be able to tolerate an 8.3 magnitude quake. Even some of the world's most robust structures do not last forever. They cannot withstand hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes. Even those with the strongest foundations come crumbling down. And yet when it comes to our salvation, we have something so strong that it can withstand anything. The foundation of our salvation is Christ, and He is our bedrock. And when the storms of life come and batter against us, we will not crumble but he will make sure that we are safe to the end. These truths about the Holy Spirit should bring joy to your hearts. Our hearts are prone to wander. The devil tempts us. We fail at times. The world batters us. Sometimes we get discouraged. We get tired. We wonder if being a Christian is even worth it. We often wonder if we're all alone in this fight of faith. We lose heart from time to time, and we need to remind ourselves that God is faithful to make sure we make it to the end. We need God's truth to tell us that God, the Holy Spirit, is working powerfully in our lives to sanctify us and to prepare us for the second coming. What God begins, He will complete. He won't go halfway and then stop because somehow we've exhausted His patience or worn Him out of His infinite grace poured out on us in the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1, 6 reminds us, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As we think about our relationship to each person of the Trinity, we've seen that we love and glorify the Father and treasure and submit to the Son. What then is our joyful response to the Holy Spirit? We also, in turn, wholly depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. We express thankfulness for His overcoming our spiritual deadness by causing us to be born again. We declare our need for Him to produce His fruit within us. We call upon Him to do that deep work of transformation in our lives to make us more like Jesus. He's the one who produces the fruit of the Spirit within you. He's the one who gives you the daily strength to face life struggles. He provides you with God's grace to become more and more like Jesus. Again, the Holy Spirit is indispensable to your spiritual growth and gospel identity. Without Him working in our lives, you and I are nothing. As a believer in Christ, you are chosen, adopted, and accepted by the Father. You are purchased, forgiven, and righteous in the Son. You are regenerated, indwelled, and sanctified by the Spirit. In short, you have a beautiful gospel identity in the Trinity. Each person in the Trinity has done a mighty work in your life. In thankfulness, you glorify and love the Father, you treasure and submit to the Son, and you rely upon the Holy Spirit. Now, if we only focus on our identity being we are just going half the distance to where God is taking us in this process of transformation. I said earlier in chapter 3 that being comes before doing, and that is true. But to be faithful followers of Jesus, we also need to be doing. We need to obey. We need to respond to our great God for the love, grace, and power He's shown us. Walter Marshall succinctly captures the essence of how our gospel identity 
flows outward into joyful obedience. Quote, Holiness consists not only in external works of piety and charity, but in the holy thoughts, imaginations, and affections of the soul, and chiefly in love, from whence all other good works must flow, not only in refraining the execution of sinful lust, but in longing and delighting to do the will of God, and in a cheerful obedience to God, without repining, fretting, grudging at any duty, as if it were a grievous yoke and burden to you, end quote. Marshall shows how doing the will of God in cheerful obedience emerges from a heart that is not resentful toward God, but one that has been renewed to delight in conformity toward God's law. Finding our identity in the Trinity ignites a deep passion in us to obey God out of a sense of gratitude. Instead of this obedience becoming a begrudging duty or unbearable yoke of frustrating guilt, this truth harkens back to understanding gospel grammar. If we get the moral imperatives before gospel indicatives, we have a disastrous recipe for growth and sanctification. The gospel indicatives show us the reality of what the triune God has perfectly accomplished for us in salvation and who we are in relation to Him. Gospel indicatives do not tell us what to do, but instead tell us what Almighty God has already done for us. On the other hand, moral imperatives tell us what to do in obedience to the Lord. As unregenerate sinners, we lacked the ability and desire to obey Jesus, and the law of God threatened us with condemnation because we could not keep it perfectly. In regeneration, the Lord has graciously transformed us from the inside out, whereby He has written or implanted the law within us. This incredible reality comes as a result of the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, 33-34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The Lord will put his law within us and write it on our hearts. What does this mean exactly? Well, before in the Old Covenant, the law came externally on stone for the people to obey. We see this in Exodus 31, 18. God required them to obey and remain faithful to His holy standard, but yet His law was external. It wasn't an internal transformation whereby the Holy Spirit would take up residence in them and give them the power to obey. This desire to obey the Lord is a promise of regeneration or being born again. Moses likens this promise to spiritual circumcision in Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. Sinclair Ferguson explains this truth, quote, In regeneration, the desires are renewed. In the work of giving us new spiritual life, God creates in us new tendencies and dispositions towards right living. He puts His law in our hearts so that the motivation to glorify and serve Him and the paths of righteousness is no longer an external force, but an inward power, end quote. As those with a new identity in the Trinity... We now have both the ability and desire to obey due to the Spirit's work within us. We follow the Lord with a joyful willingness, not so that He will love and accept us in return. Instead, we diligently obey because, as dearly loved children, we rest in the security of a faithful Father who loves us, a righteous Savior who has bought us, and a powerful Spirit who's transformed us. John Owen writes, quote, This liberty of our Father's family 
which we have as sons and children being adopted by Christ the Spirit is a spiritual largeness of heart whereby the children of God do freely, willingly, genuinely, without fear, terror, bondage, and constraint, go forth to all holy obedience in Christ. End quote. God never lowers the bar of obedience once we've been saved by grace. The law of God does not threaten us anymore, nor are we under its penalty or power. We do not obey the law as a means of justification or acceptance by God. Instead, the law serves as a holy guide for living and glad obedience to Him on a daily basis. Ernest Reisinger explains, quote, True, the Christian is not under the law as a covenant of works, nor as a ministration of condemnation, but he is under the law as a rule of life and an objective standard of righteousness for all people at all times. End quote. The Puritan Samuel Bolton sums up what our response should be to the law of God. Quote, Our obedience to the law is nothing else but an expression of our thankfulness to God who has freely justified us that being redeemed, we might serve Him without fear. End quote. Being, our identity, does come before doing, our obedience. The gospel indicatives come before the moral imperatives, but God still commands us as believers to obey Him, not as a means to attain righteousness, but out of our new nature as adopted children. Even though we have this beautiful new identity in the Trinity, obedience to Jesus is not easy. The Bible describes Christian life as constant warfare. In the next section, we will explore the insidious nature of indwelling sin and how the Bible commands us to kill it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there you have it. Chapter 6, Your Identity in the Holy Spirit from my book, Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. Hopefully that gave you a, a flavor of what the nature of the book is about. And so God bless you. Make his face shine upon you. And would you always keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? And would you rest securely in your identity in the Trinity? 